Parenting is hard. Few of us feel up to the task. The world is shifting, quickly and dramatically. All of us feel the changes affecting our families. The stress and pressure can be intense. We are here to help sort the good and the bad, provide insight and bring hope. Welcome to Brilliantly Brave Parenting. We're so glad you stopped by. Hi, I'm Pastor Brad Mathias. I want to welcome you to Brilliantly Brave Parenting. I'm Robert Beeson. We're glad you're here. This is going to be this is going to be a great episode. I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. But before we get into the the meat of it, Brad, what are you wearing? I'm so glad you asked. I know you are. It was set yeah. up. You told me to ask that. Well, I am wearing a hat that I got from Maine, of course. Mm-hmm. And this hat is, is that a, a demon sheep or something on it? No, Robert. It's not a demon sheep. It's a very magnificent, big. Black bear. No, it's not. It looks like a hamster or something. It's angry. You're going to have to come on and watch it for yourself because obviously Robert needs his prescription updated because he's so old. I don't. <clears throat> okay. Whatever. You're a grandparent. I'm a grandparent. Your beard's gray. It is getting there. Yeah, and I think almost... you're needing the, the bifocal thing. Did you talk I to have, your doctor? I have a bifocal. Well, it's not working because yeah. this is a bear. No, I can't. <laughs> okay. You're going to have to go on on YouTube and watch this episode because it's clearly <laughs> not a bear. Well, it's not a mighty bear. If it's a bear, it's like a little, like, preemie bear. Yeah. Well, it is a black bear, and it is the mascot of the team's hat that I'm okay. wearing, which is from Maine. And you can look it up, University of Maine, to see what their mascot is. I'm good. Okay. Thank you, though. I think you're slightly blind. Well, thank you for noticing my hat, Robert. And... uh I, I am grateful that you take such profound interest in all things Maine since I've moved there. Well, when I'm told that that's what I need to do, then that's what I need to do. Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, I'm not even – we're going to – Well, each of us deals with our stress in different ways, and obviously your favorite way is to make fun of me, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay that I can help you cope it's with It's right here issues. in my script. That's what oh, it says, make fun of Brad. I didn't write this stuff. <laughs> So today, Robert, we need a segue, bud. We need a segue. Well, there's not there's not a graceful segue from going to, from insults to what we're going to deal with. But um, I I'll tell you just from a personal perspective, I'm so excited about this this interview um, because it's something that we I'm kind of dreading it a little. Well, you know what? But that's yeah. the point. That's why I think this is important. Is that yeah. most of us in the church we step around things that are difficult to talk about. Um, because we're scared what that might, the impression that might leave on other people, the per- perspective that maybe we are, you know, I don't know, weak, which we are. Well, I mean, the, the underlying truth is that this is a messy, messy topic. We're dealing with grief, addiction, recovery, uh, suicide. We're dealing with stuff that parents come face to face with in the dark. This is right. And uh, it's not talked about a lot. And when it is talked about, it's usually in secret. Uh, privately, and it's sort of as a shame. There's a total shame. I, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you just from the very beginning. First of all, we're so glad to have you with us today, Cindy. Uh, Cindy Blom is our guest, and we're going to be talking about addiction and grief. So thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'll tell you just transparently, addiction is one of the a huge theme in my family, um, and I can tell you that it's a very difficult um, burden to carry because there's very few places. To share that or to mm-hmm. unload that, because we we feel somehow that that is just a mark against us, and that we're we're just you know 
damaged beyond control or we are, whatever it is, I just know the weight of shame. So I'm so grateful that you're willing to come and talk to us um, about, about these issues. Why don't you give us and our listeners a little bit of a background on how you found yourself, because now you counsel and you're involved with helping people with grief and addiction. Um, obviously, that doesn't you don't wake up one morning when you're a teenager and go, that's what I want to go into. <laughs> so no, walk no, us no. through how you got there. Well, I am. Um, I'm coming up on almost a one year anniversary of not being in as a paid professional Christian anymore. I was a mm. church lady um, for 25 years on wow. staff. So everything that I'm going to talk about today was as a staff member of a church mm. of a big um, church here in Middle Tennessee. So that makes it kind of interesting. So as I was you know, kind of watching the Jesus sausage get made on the inside. <laughs> what a great quote. And also fan. going with, Jesus sausage. wow, how does this, you know, I'm, a little bit of what do I hear on Sunday morning? Mm -hmm. And then I go, does, do I believe this? Does it apply to where I'm at? So where I land now is I help people who I, I help with active addicts. And I'll just tell you that that's still hard for me to do. Mm. I mean, it's not an easy coaching mm -hmm. job. Although I um, hold on to hope and and help the families understand what they're dealing with more so than, than chasing them down. I have been known to chase them down on the projects, but that is not my favorite <laughs> thing to do. Um, but I do a lot with grief. And a lot of my grief coaching is actually before someone passes, hmm. because there's so much grief in the loss of life, of their life that hmm. they want to live, um, and they're still living. So hmm. they're living this... You're talking about as a parent watching parent your and, kid or spouse? And the, or? and the addict. Okay, The right. addict has so much grief because it's not where they want to be. Hmm. Their brain is playing tricks on them every yeah. single day and um, telling them lies every single day. So there's the whole spiritual component for an addict and a family, and then how do you integrate? And I believe that we're all giving given a huge story, God's story in envelopes our individual stories. And he is, you know, he is leading us through all of it. So every morning I wake up and I'm stewarding a story I didn't ever want. Right. And I wake up and I go, morning, dude, you got some work to do because this wasn't my bright idea. I don't, still understand why my son's not here. Mm. So um, I enter into that conversation with my Savior in a way that I go, I don't have any idea how you're going to redeem this. And um, But I know He does. Yeah. I know He does every day. And there are times where I tear up just because I'm passionate mm -hmm. about what I've been called to do. This is not, you said it, it's not something that I decided, oh, I'm going to stop working um, as the church lady, the church secretary, and go and dive into this world because mm. it's hard. It's hard, but there's so much beauty. There's yeah. so much beauty um, in it and hope, and it's the best place to to offer that. As um, Just to unpack it really briefly, the, the what you're talking about, the loss of your son, um, how did, what happened? He struggled with addiction since he was 14 years old. So his um, first introduction to opiates was on the bus on his way to school. Mm. The kids on the bus would go into their parents' or grandparents' medicine cabinets and take a pill here and a pill there. And that's where it starts. So that is where it 
began for him. And I think what he realized is that it numbed a lot of his emotional pain. He struggled with depression and anxiety disorder. Later on in life, there was rape trauma involved that he was dealing with. Um, so he was clean for six months and came back to live with us. It was January 26 of 2014. My husband has a guitar building business and a guitar repair business. And he he said, I need, I need a safe place to live. I need someone to give me rides. I don't want a phone. I don't want, I don't want a car. I just need support. So what he was asking for was sober living. Right. We didn't really have a name for that at that point. Um, but he was asking for a place for sober living and aftercare. And we were able to do that. Um, April of 2014 was a really difficult month. He, um, he went to a psychiatrist and they gave him different meds. And he kind of tanked and went downhill and had the last day, um, April 30th, I would say the 29th and 30th, he had a some sort of a mental break, mental health break, and um, just really went off the rails and hadn't slept. And so we had to call, we had to call for a mental health evaluation, a, a safe check to our own property. Um, we had fire trucks, ambulance, police officers, police officers with guns drawn behind trees. Oh man, that's scary stuff. Towards the cabin. Yeah. And I'm on the phone in my closet calling a friend and saying, I'm afraid it's going to be death by cop. Mm. Well, he went to the hospital. They released him. He didn't have health insurance. Came back home. We needed to kind of diffuse where he was at. We were trying to get him in a hotel. And he um, he was fearing having to go back into jail. And that night, he just decided he was going to use. And he used the first time in six months, and it killed him. So his death certificate is deemed an accidental heroin overdose. Um, the morning on May 1st, we came back from Centennial Hospital and my friends who, you know, worked at the church with me and they're like, what do you, <laughs> you know, you're, everyone knew that he battled addiction, but they didn't know how hard it had gotten. Mm. What are you going to say? Well, for some reason I opened my phone and opened Facebook and my daughter had posted worst day of my life. My best friend and brother just died of an accidental heroin overdose. Mm. And I said, well, I guess we're telling that's the out truth. Of the bag. Yeah. We're telling the truth. Yeah. And we've told the truth ever since. And part of that reason is because the stigma is well also what is the devastating part and the and the despair. Yeah. If we can't talk about it, then there's no place for healing and light and hope and care to show up. So for five years, we've been telling the truth. So his service, we had we called it a no-suit zone. We wouldn't let the pastors wear suits. We had T-shirts that said Eric Blum, Eric Blum visuals on the front, and on the back it said crew. And um, we <laughs> laughed. We said, you know, the only time he wore a suit is when he had to go to court. So this is a no-suit zone. <laughs> and um, people came with Bob Ross T-shirts because he was a great mm. artist and band T-shirts. And we really just said, you know, we lost someone who was a brilliant artist and a very compassionate, loving friend. And he lost the battle to something in his mind that wanted him dead. He, yeah. And there's mm -hmm. a difference, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't deemed suicide um, because he had a plan. He was going to come back the next day and make amends and all of that. He wasn't planning on dying. He mm -hmm. used the same amount that he did six months before, and it took his life. He just didn't have the tolerance. Yeah. 
How old was he? 29. Wow. Yeah. As I'm listening to you, you're a mother, and you went through the the pain of that loss. Mm -hmm. I can see it in your eyes. I can... I can read it on your face. But you also, at some point, move past that grief to channel it into helping other people through this process. And even though it is permanently in your history, it didn't define you. Something else happened. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I think God doesn't give you a story unless he's prepared you for it. And he, I, like I said, I was on the church staff, and I was— um, I was in congregational care for several years. My job was to do funerals and to help mm. people with terminal illness and to plan um, for care. And I set up care teams that would bring meals to people who had cancer and people who had, um, I call them the church-accepted act of God moments, <clears throat> not the ones that are drug Messy. addiction yeah. or things that you probably our behavior modification needed. So I did a lot of that, you know, congregational care. And I realized for a lot of years that there was a lot of care going on in the church that our family never really would even dare ask for. Mm. And um, there was always this disconnect with me. And I thought, that just doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. So I think I, I started sharing with people stories, I, I would say when people are in needing care, it's their story. Ask them what they're comfortable sharing. So we set up teams that said, this is what they need. They need to know who knows. They need. So we set up these safe environments. And I think that kind of stuff gave me the energy to say, this has to happen. And we have to move forward where we're changing how people who are literally watching their loved ones die are being cared for by Jesus, by the mm. bride of Christ. Right. So it was a little bit of me taking all of those years of working in care and saying, there's a whole population here that absolutely needs to understand. And there's a ton of energy in the church with not knowing what to do. So I was more about, how can we harness that? And mm. I felt like giving a story and sharing truth and and talking through things is the best way to educate um, other people. And that's really what sort of motivated us. So we also went into the business of building guitars. We call them EB Rooster guitars. We give money back from every guitar we make, and we share Eric's story honestly and openly. So on our website, um, ebrooster-guitars.com, and on Blum Guitars, we tell the truth. And Dan will have customers come in for guitar repair and building, and I'll walk out there, and these there will be three men sitting around a bench and a guitar in tears. Mm. And people come in and go, yeah, no, this is my brother. This is my son. This is my... Mm -hmm. So I feel like this. we just have opened this mission field of um, being able to handle hard stories and say there's hope. Don't, you know, tell, find some people that you can trust, and you need them desperately. Wow, Robert, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of families right now who are dealing with the scourge of heroin, opioids. Mm -hmm. 192 a day. Yeah. When that's, Eric died, it was 124 a day. It's not getting better, no, it's, folks. No, it's going in the wrong. I, I, someone very, very, very close to me um, 
overdosed and was resuscitated twice. And it was not, I mean, it's not planned. It's just a normal. And uh, one of my daughters, she's lost, I think, five friends in the last maybe five years, maybe less mm-hmm. to heroin overdose. Yep. Uh, people very close to her. So this is not a. This is definitely not something that we can sweep under the, the rug. It, it's something that that is. It is uncomfortable to talk about, but it is critical that we talk about it. Well, yeah, and I mean, I just moved to Maine. You don't know this, but I moved to Maine a few months. ago. I think ago. she knows it now. Well, yeah, down I mean, the, the, bear <laughs> the hat, the hat and everything, but, the hair in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> but the bottom line is like there. There are almost no continuity with Maine culture and Tennessee culture. Except that they're struggling with the opioid epidemic just as bad as we are. Yeah. Like that is it's the, the thread, thread. Yeah. that every community in America says, oh my gosh, this, this is affecting the, the rich kids, the poor kids, the educated, the uneducated. It is mm-hmm. absolutely ruthless in its impact yeah. on every strata of social economic part of our nation. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I do is I, I minister to single parents. Um, and so in doing that, we've done a lot of research. And um, some of the alarming st- statistics that come out of single-parent homes are are tragic. And one of those statistics is that 75% of all children in chemical rehabilitation hospitals or centers come from single-parent homes. 75% of those that are getting help are from single-parent homes. So I can tell you as a single parent, I was a single parent for eight and a half years, it's it's sobering. Mm-hmm. Can you help us, not just single parents, but all of us? What are some of the things that we can look for, and then what are some of the things that we can do? Because I dealt, like I said, I dealt with it in my family. My daughter really struggled with it. My ex-wife struggled with it, and um, it's hard because as parents, we want to do everything and we want to fix, and we become enablers, and then we, be, you know, it's just this balancing back and forth between believing the lies that our addict. Mm-hmm. child mm-hmm. has in their heads, you start even believing into that, you know, and going through, there's just, there's so many facets to it and there's nowhere safe to talk about it. So can you walk us through some of those things as parents we can do to realize things that we can do to help our kids if we suspect that there might be an issue? Well, I think one of the biggest things that I um, wish I would have known before yeah. Eric died, there were, there were some things that I'm like, okay, you know what we did, we did really good parenting when when i saw the brilliantly brave parenting i thought okay brilliant not so much a brave i feel like we had to be brave and then parenting it felt like i was just getting at things that were coming at me yeah that doesn't really feel like parenting to me when it's just coming through a fire hydrant at me and i'm like i wish i could have stopped the fire hydrant enough to parent and i think that's what you're kind of asking um We the the hard thing right now is it's not that there's not enough resources to help people. There's a lot of money being thrown into this. Um, when we study the brain of an addict, and this is somebody who's been using on a regular basis, there's brain scans, brain mapping. Their prefrontal cortex is there's no dopamine. It's not on. So what we do know now is that there's trauma, big T trauma or little t trauma, whatever it is, that informs the amygdala, which is the part of their brain, that's constantly driving the bus. So when the prefrontal cortex isn't communicating and it's offline, then all that's doesn't there's mm. doesn't make sense. I had a bout of transient global amnesia last fall. Mm. Interesting little thing. Lights went off. I went out into Dan's shop and said, I don't know what's real anymore. That was the best eight hours given to me as a coach and a mom because I finally realized what it was probably like to be an addict with no prefrontal cortex. All I knew, 
all day long in those eight hours, I kept saying, did I have a son? Was his name Eric? Did he die? I rotated that through my head every single time. Finally, Chloe put it on my phone and said, you had a son. And because she's like, you're just in this amnesia route. That I believe is the closest to what an addict's brain is probably doing. You throw into there a reward center that is going, wow, it's numbing my pain. And I, you know, I mean, we get into the disease of addiction, the whatever, I kind of go, you know, I don't, I think mental illness and trauma Mm. and pain drives a lot of our addicts. If you look at the ACEs study, um, it's the, it's, really evaluating childhood experiences to see who's at risk. I would say parents look at that and be honest and see is your is your child at risk. Then there's also things of you fight with them against the illness. We spent tons of years just battling him. Mm. Battling him and we mm-hmm. didn't realize how we could support him. It wasn't a moral failure. He was he was self-medicating um and probably a a mood disorder that had taken place for years. So unpack that for just a second. How 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 to support him? What what does that mean? That means um, well things when we did it well. I'm gonna because yeah. we're gonna do. Hey, I was yeah. brilliantly brave at this moment. Yeah, let me just be really <laughs> clear yeah, with that. The the brilliantly brave term mm-hmm. is tongue in cheek for us because between us, Robert and I have screwed up more things <laughs> as dad. So we feel like we're experts at. Screwing up parenting, so exactly. brilliantly brave is tongue in cheek. Well, so I'm no, I'm yeah. I'm actually laughing with you guys about that. So this one thing, I really felt like we did we did fairly well. Um, it was it was helping him to say, oh, you know, you're dealing with this. Let us let us make a plan. And so any contracts we made, they would be ones that were informed by other entities that he trusted that spoke into it with us and we put a team of people around us and he knew who they were he also knew who we who knew his story and we honored that we honored keeping those things private but we really tried to do it in a way that's no different than if he all of a sudden had testicular cancer mm. he wouldn't want us telling everybody that he had testicular cancer no different but we are going to do medical treatment and we are going to figure out what does this look like to so fight with we're you against this the, team yeah not we're you got to deal together, with this right? right not would you just stop this you know better than that. We taught you better than that. Da, da, yeah, da. All that helpful. kind of stuff. No, it's what's going on and follow the pain. Go back to where a lot of times they're not going to know. Um, you need to find healthcare providers and mental health people that that they trust. My biggest mistake, you know, I mean, that whole after Eric died, we all went through, well, you know, my daughter would go, well, I I killed him because we had this right. argument that day, or I did. <clears throat> and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to play that game. I killed him on April 1st. Mm-hmm. I didn't go with him to the doctor. Right. When he went to the psychiatrist, I wasn't in the room. I didn't say, hey, we're doing this as a team. If he would be dealing with cancer, I would have been welcome in the room. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's wrong with us that when it's a brain injury and a mental illness that we're not coming in. So we need to teach providers also that parents aren't bad. We're not the enemy here. Mm-hmm. Although it's easy to do that. And I can yeah. go in, I'm the best, I'm the best wife in the world when I'm the only one in the therapy room. <laughs> I mean, bring exactly. in my husband and bring in my kids and they'll Hold probably do side, right? Exactly. So it's the same thing. But if I were there having any kind of other serious illness, we would have informed 
um, people coming in. That's not what we're doing right now. We're, we have a long way to go with this as far as therapists are concerned. And I'm, I say we. I'm not a therapist. I'm a coach. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, yeah, I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking also pastors, right? The church itself yeah. is interpreting uh, addiction and this this sort of trauma that that people are carrying around that leads them to medicate their pain. Mm-hmm. We're treating that as moral failure yep. rather than a physical illness. So you get a completely different response. Yep. Yep. One's so, judgment, the other exactly. one's support. Exactly. Did and you? we wouldn't do that. So the same no. with the same with grandma who has a stroke or 58-year-old um, Cindy Blum who has transient global amnesia. You don't send me home and say, okay. You went to 30 days of rehab, Cindy. Now you're going to do 90 meetings in 90 days. You're going to go find a job. You're going to do this. You're going to pay your own bills. You're going to. Their lights aren't on in their prefrontal cortex. Dr. Stephen Lloyd, I, I really wish that he would do um, a better presentation of it, but he, I sat and listened to one of his presentations of the brain, an addict's brain. And he has a story of recovery where he was, he's a um, recovering opiate addict. And there are no lights on. The reward center is derailing them all the time. It's just their brain doing what God created their brain to do, to say, hey, this feels good. It's the stuff that keeps us passionate about art, passionate about God, passionate about all those things. God gave us that brain. Well, theirs is derailed. We don't ask 80-year-old grandma to take care of that. We have an aftercare plan that's comprehensive. And I think with most families, we need to look at a two-year aftercare plan. Ah, where there's you yeah. you don't they're really not thinking clearly right. for a hundred days one hundred days before their lights come on well we're taking them out of rehab thirty days and going you better get your act together just go to meetings get this all right and get it all taken care of and then you can't even go to church and say what kind of stress your family's under because mm. well Shame. that doesn't count you know I mean yeah you got it you know, crappy kids, what kind of parent are you? Mm. You know, all of those kinds of things. So if we can lift the veil of shame and open it up and say, what's the best place for the church? It's what I tease about. Put them on the meal calendar. Hmm. Bring them a meal. Give them support. You know, the day Eric died was the first day of my my lead pastor on staff. And I thought, well, what a day to meet him. You know, I was on his search committee, so I knew him before, but wow, that was a hard day. Mm. You know, I wish it would have been something like, yeah, you know, we were, we'd done chemo, we'd done this. Well, we did that. We just didn't have any of that kind of care and support. Our hospice, our hospice moment was police behind trees with guns drawn to a cabin of a mentally ill young man. Right. Yeah. As As you're sharing your story... Um, there are parents out there who may not have an addicted child. They may be addicted themselves. Mm-hmm. And there may be uh, some shame and, and, and really trauma they've carried their whole life with them. Yep. Um, what would you say to the parent who's finding themselves stuck? I'd say, um, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking that there's no way out of this and that if anyone knew what your life was like, they would judge you and you would never be accepted. And mm-hmm. it's not true. It's not true. It's the biggest lie ever. Mm-hmm. There are people who will accept you and where your story isn't bigger than what um, God can handle for you and heal for you. Um, but you can't do this alone. 
You've it's got really to find a, safe people. You know, it's so interesting uh, that when when asked why he was here, Jesus responded by quoting a, a passage out of Isaiah, and he said, I came to heal the brokenhearted and to set the captive free. Yeah. That was his mission. Absolutely. On earth. His own articulated mission on earth. Not my opinion. That's what he said when asked in, in, in Jerusalem. Yeah. And I, I can't think of an issue or, mm-hmm. a, or a topic that yeah. that comment, that mission more perfectly fits than addiction and grief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story. Thank it's, you for asking me. It's um, it's God. Work. It's God's story. Yeah. Well, it's, we appreciate your courage in doing well, this. Well, and we just touched the tip of a very big iceberg. So, where could people find you? What? How would they get a hold of you? Well, I have a small presence on a website called Guitars That Care, and that's the one where we help people who struggle the way Eric did. I'm also on Facebook. Um, so, spell, spell your last name so they can find you. B is in boy. L O M as in Mary. Excellent. Cindy, it has been uh, really an honor to have you in the studio with us today. Thank you for your transparency, your honesty, and your courage. You're very welcome. Brad, you know I'm a foodie, right? Absolutely. Okay, I want to tell you about this awesome coffee experience. It's called CJ's Coffee Culture and Community. It is a faith-run coffee culture. And the thing that's really cool about this is that they roast their own beans, they have delicious coffees, and they they have two brick and mortar, so two coffee bars, as well as a virtual location at cjscoffeecafe.com. Here's the cool thing. They ship their beans, they ship their coffee anywhere in the world, so you don't just have to be in Texas to enjoy it. CJ's Coffee Culture and Community. Awesome. Robert, that, of all the interviews we've done, that one hit me a little hard. Um, me too. Me too. Because I, I think these are things that happen to other people, right? Mm-hmm. Like this isn't... It's closer than you think. Yeah. And I think that the reason that that hit us hard is is precisely what keeps us from from actually talking about it. Because it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to approach. And... Um, I I just I admire her courage so much and and just her things she said a couple of maybe three times she goes we decided to tell the truth. Um people that have addiction in their family, suicide in their family, uh, overdose wh- whatever, they are so riddled with shame that they just don't talk about it and we all know what happens when there are things that um we don't talk about. I mean that's that's where the enemy has his that's a hey yeah, you know. I, and I was thinking, you know, sort of representing the pastors of the world, you know, in this conversation, I'm thinking, what do pastors think? How, how does a pastor respond to this? And I know there are past. I know the pastors who would say, well, they just need to get in church. Mm. You know, that's the solution to this addiction. And and maybe that is true. Well, it would be but the equivalent it's not of the telling whole... someone that has cancer, they just need to get in church. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my point is that yeah. uh, that's why people aren't telling their pastors. Mm-hmm. Because there, there's more to this story than just a conversion. There's more to this story than just a moment in church of, de, you know, of deliverance. Yeah. That there are patterns here. There are behavioral profiles that have been deeply ingrained. And what I love about the things that she was saying, and it just sits so close to home because addiction has been such a big part of our family's um, challenges, is 
but also just knowing the statistics that, you know, like 90% of suicides in kids, I mean, 63% of all suicides amongst kids come from single parent homes. 75% of all drug rehabilitation are from single parent homes. That's like, this astounding. Is, it's astounding. Yeah. This is U.S. Census information. This is not like biased towards a yeah. denomination or anything. My point is that these are these are serious issues, and I and I think that um, unless we start looking at not just relegating it to like, well, you just need Jesus, and you just I mean, listen, Jesus can bring people back from the dead; he can do whatever. But if we don't have these conversations, we're not going to move towards a cure. It's like like um, Rick Warren, you know, his son struggled with uh, the pastor Saddleback, purpose driven life guy. I mean, like all the the credentials Christian wise, his son dealt with. Um, serious mental behavioral issues and ended up committing suicide. He's the, I mean, you talk about somebody that's grounded. Rick Warren's a pretty godly example sure. of someone that's plugged For in. Sure. But I love the fact that he's just like, we've got to start talking talk about, about this. We yeah. have to start talking about this. So I'm so impressed with her and I'm, I'm glad that she was brave enough to tell her story. And, um, for those listeners out there, please go check out her website and reach out to her. I think she's got a lot of wisdom and, and if nothing else, for you to know that you're not alone and that um, you're not weird or you shouldn't be carrying a ton of shame around just because um, you or someone in your family, someone that you love deals with addiction or grief. Absolutely. And as, you know, as parents, we carry enough guilt. We carry mm-hmm. enough shame. Uh, all by ourselves and to add to that and to consider ourselves failures because our children got exposed to an opiate or right. a, a heroin at mm-hmm. a young age is not only uh, unreasonable, it's it's not healthy. It's a lie. Yeah, it's not healthy. Well, I, I applaud Cindy as well for her uh, willingness to come on the show and, and actually wanting to tell her story so that other parents could be helped by it. And uh, I pray that her message makes a difference in the lives of of many of our listeners today. Absolutely. And um, go ahead and uh, push the subscribe button on your podcast because we're not afraid to take on issues like this. You can count on us continuing to try to dig into difficult situations that we deal with as parents um, because we need to be talking about this, these things. And so on your podcast platform, push subscribe and you'll make sure to get the latest information that we have. Um, not just bad news. There's a lot of things to be grateful for and that we can celebrate as well. So um, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And uh, while you're there, uh, give us a positive. Yeah. Mark. Make, it a nice, just make a nice comment. Thank you. And maybe earmark the Robert was awesome. Okay. Kind of thing. Well, at at the very least, I think uh, you should know we're a 501c3. I shine Ministries is nonprofit, and we do uh, rely on our partners and on our contributors. If you are interested in the partners behind this podcast, please check it out on our website at brilliantlybrewparenting.com. And until next week, have a great week, and we'll see you here next week. Be encouraged, parents. You are not alone. In Paul's letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, he writes... But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Brilliantly Brave Parenting wants to be an encouragement and support that parents can rely on. Would you consider liking us and sharing us with a friend? As a part of the Tween Gospel Alliance, we are a nonprofit organization dependent on the support of friends like you. Thanks for stopping by. We'll be right here next week.
Hey, Robert, we've got some new stuff in the web store. Tell me about it, Brad. It's our very own swag. Really? Absolutely Brilliantly Brave now has its own line of caps, cups, clothing. Yeah, everything, man. We got swag. Dog sweaters? Uh, I don't know about the dog sweaters yet, but we can work on it. Okay. So if you're a fan and you've been listening to Brilliantly Brave and you want to share it with your friends, let them know that you're a supporter, hey, come to our website, ishinelive.com, and find out more. We are excited to announce the Storms of Life study, Living Beyond Stressed Out and Overwhelmed. It's a great subtitle, Living Beyond Stressed Out and Overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we know that students are stressed. And for parents and pastors, it's important to know what are the top three things that are really on the minds of our kids. So Brad, walk us through what they can expect from the Storms of Life. This is an eight-week study. It has uh, video insights. It has uh, presentations from a actual youth retreat with junior high and high school students. These kids are going to learn about how their faith can help them fight back the stress that they're living with every day at school. Check it out on iShineLive.com.